I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to this episode of Talking Points. I'm your host, Brian Kelly, the points guy. And today we've got a really interesting guest. You know, we've had Tony Award winners and CEOs on this podcast, but today I think it's our first James Beard Award winner, 28 times over, I believe. Welcome Danny Meyer, CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group. I'm so happy to be here and to meet you. We have uh, come to meet each other because points run deep in your family, from what I hear. Well, points not only run deep, and but, travel. but travel does. So I grew up in St. Louis, and my dad was a travel agent. Oh, and really? he and my mom, for the first two years of their marriage, lived on the border of Alsace and Germany because he was a counterintelligence officer in the Army. Oh, I promise wow. The story, <laughs> I promise this story is going somewhere. But the reason that, that he was uh, recruited to do that was because he had a real gift for languages. Hmm. And the time, the two years that they were there, uh, were basically spent as a two-year honeymoon because there were no altercations yeah. during those oh. two years. And they spent their entire time driving through the French countryside, getting to know innkeepers, um, yeah. mostly who would take them in and feed them. So he comes back to St. Louis, starts a travel agency because everyone wanted to know where you know, where yep. they should take these driving trips. And he ended up becoming the first American agent for a fledgling group of inns, which were then called Relata Compagna. They later became Relay and Chateau. Oh, wow. And yeah, so right. we would always have French people living in our home. We had a little dog named Ratatouille. <laughs> um, we were cooking all the time. Yeah. But we also got to travel all the time. Yeah. And he became the uh, president of ASTA, the American Society of Travel Agents, Oh wow! So and then yeah. later, he changed his entire business from designing custom tours, you know, for this person or that person, to designing group tours. Mm. And so, to the same, all with a Europe focus, or did almost he ever almost yeah. all with a European focus. And he decided that he was going to segment part of the airline industry, IATA. Mm-hmm. I know you know exactly yeah. what that means. Yeah. And so anyone who was an airline employee or their family could qualify to take his trips. But anyway, I grew up speaking the language of travel and, you know, learning how to work my way through airports. I I traveled first time by myself at the age of six. Oh, wow. And I I just connect with, with people who love travel as a way of life. And so throughout your business, um, you know, so you started Shake Shack and a number of other restaurants. I, I, in prepping for this podcast, I was blown away just how many. You have, what, almost 250 Shake Shacks around the world now. Well, um, let's get back. Way before there yeah. was Shake Shack, yeah. there was Union Square Cafe. That was the one restaurant mm-hmm. I had for the first 10 years of my career. And then Gramercy Tavern. Yeah. All, then both was, of which I can see from my office, which yeah. has been a very... And I do all my breakfast meetings at, or lunch meetings at Mylino. So I am surrounded by... Your restaurants. And, and, and part of the amazing. reason you're certain there's a couple that, that we did own that you would also be surrounded by, 11 Madison Park mm-hmm. and Tabla, Blue Smoke up the street, yep. Marta, our Roman pizza grill. In the early days, travel was really the secret weapon 
I had, I still think it is, in terms of discovering foods, discovering wines, discovering a new design, a new mm -hmm. way of expressing, really, hospitality. And then the world did catch up because before the Internet, you could find ideas three or four years before anyone else because mm -hmm. you had to know how to read a map. You had to know how to speak yeah. the language so you could ask the local winemaker who really runs the best trattoria in that little village mm -hmm. that's barely even on the Michelin map. Today, you don't have to travel to see that dish. You, you can see photos of it. You can see what people think of it. You can get the but, recipe. But I would almost argue with, in the TripAdvisor age, there's almost too much information, right? Like, how do you synthesize all of that information? And, and do you still have your network of close friends that you trust? Or are there certain sites for, in the culinary world, of the, the real good places to go that you recommend? Absolutely. You know, you synthesize it in a number of ways. I, th I think that as with any criticism, whether it's a movie critic or a, a food critic or travel critic, over time, if that critic's voice, you may or may not agree with that person all the time, but if the voice is consistent, you start to get a directory in your own mind as to when, when did our taste agree and disagree, and you can kind of calibrate it. But the other thing, I'm, I'm a really good cross-referencer. Mm -hmm. And there's three or four sites that I like to use. But then there's friends. And I have so many yep. colleagues and friends in the industry. And usually, if you go to a restaurant that you love, that chef is going to yeah. lead you to somewhere local that you may not know about. That sommelier is going to lead you to a winery maybe you've never heard about. So travel historically for me has always been about research and development, but it's also about satisfying my love for learning about people because I think that when you can find the most local things that people eat, the most local places they go, the most local bakery mm -hmm. that supplies the most local coffee shop, yep. then you start to learn about who these people are. And, and it's such a transporting feeling. So one of the most unique parts of your restaurants is um, how you treat your employees and the fact that there's no tipping. All of my European friends always say the tipping culture is out of control. And um, so you made the decision a long time ago to pay your employees so that they didn't depend on tips. Was that because of your travels to Europe and where you know tipping isn't the culture, especially in places in Asia where it's absolutely uh, offensive to tip? What what was your thought well, process? I think you, there? you bring up a really good point. I think that so we had opened up a, a restaurant twelve years ago called Union Square Tokyo. Take this the right way, but that's when I say I lost my expansion virginity <laughs> because that was the first time we ever had any restaurant that was not in New York City. That was before Shake Shack mm -hmm. grew out of New York City. And the time that I spent in Tokyo was so eye-opening. Um, and as you just said, not only is there no tipping there, but if you do it, yep. you're, you're really offending somebody because they have a principle called omotenashi, which goes even further than what I define hospitality as. And omotenashi is not only anticipation of the needs of someone else, but furthermore, it's delivering on those needs because seeing the pleasure you've created makes you feel better. And finally, it's delivering on those needs with zero expectation or welcoming of further compensation. Mm -hmm. So now I've had that Hospitality experience. and it's like ultimate form. I yep. think so. Yeah. And, and I see that experience. Then I come back to the States and I realize, you know what? It's not fair of us to impose our culture on them. 
it's not fair for us to expect that they would understand our culture when they come here. Mm-hmm. Same thing when Brits would come to our restaurants. And it creates friction between the waiters and, oh, these, I have a European table that I'm not going to, you know, like. Yes, and yeah. what a horrible thing yeah. to ask someone to do their job, yep. but to understand that their compensation is based on someone's understanding of mm-hmm. our cultural Culture, norms. Right. And so I really wanted to, to literally take that off the table. And I want to hire people who don't look at the five tables in their section and try to judge, now who should I be nice mm-hmm. to based yeah. on who I think is going to give me the biggest tip in two and a half hours. Mm-hmm. I want someone to be who they are with everybody all the time. And I'm sure people said you, it's not going to be possible to do that. I'm sure you got a lot of pushback when you came up with this concept, right? How, why do you think you've been able to prove them wrong and, and get that caliber? of? I think stubbornness is part <laughs> of it. You know, I believe in this so much also from the standpoint of really trying to professionalize our industry. Mm. I really get sad sometimes when I would talk to a terrific server um, at one of our restaurants and they'd say, well, thank you for the compliment, but I'm really just doing this while I'm pursuing something a real career as you know fill in the blank and increasingly I I came to learn that in most professions in the United States where the primary form of income is tipping that profession is not seen as a credible professional Hmm. path by a lot of people and I and I, I think that hospitality is incredibly valid and I, and I want people to look at it as a career where they can advance. It, it's a painful thing when you see that a tipped employee can make enough money to never have a different job, hmm. but it's a dead end because they cannot afford to take a 25% pay cut yeah. and become a manager, which could then lead right. to becoming assistant or general manager of the restaurant. And then do you have a lot of your waiters moving up the management ranks? Is that so today more and more we do. Yeah. And so now we are their boss. When you come to the restaurant, you're not tipping. Yeah. They're getting paid on merit and they're getting paid obviously well, well above minimum wage because they have to be. But the other thing we do, we decided while we wanted to eliminate an incentive to be nice to people, we wanted to retain an incentive to sell. Mm Mm-hmm. And so all of our formerly tipped employees also receive a share of that night's revenue, Hmm. irrespective of what night they work that week. And this is a key thing too, Brian, because in the old days, the way you got to raise as a tipped employee is you stay at the restaurant forever. So you finally get the Friday and Saturday night shifts. But God forbid you have to work Monday lunch. Yeah. So one of my first jobs, I was a waiter at Philly Steak and Crab outside of Philadelphia. I loved it. At age 18, I was... uh, but I was filling in the shifts that no one really wanted. And I, I do remember the walking out with like $150 cash. Um, but then I'd have to work Monday and it would be like $31. And it was like right. highs and lows. And, and But and, it was those battle axes who had been there forever that earned the right to, to right. get and, the good and, shifts. And I just don't think that's good for anybody. I think the guest doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. want to feel like they're getting only rookies on Monday lunch. So now when you work in any you of our me places... You, well, you're a willing rookie. <laughs> I'm sure I was... Actually, I'm... But the guests, uh, the, the, the waiters and waitresses and servers and bartenders at our restaurants can work any day, yeah. and they're still going to get a cut of that week's revenue. Have you noticed uh, other restaurants doing this in the U.S., or do you think we're – what will be the turning point where the, this happens? Because I think everyone yeah. who eats out would love to have this, right, where you're not – The, the uh, tipping point on this is that it's, it's going to take more time. A lot have tried. A lot have come to me and said thank you for – 
one person rather graphically said, thanks for running through the, uh, the barbed wire first so hmm. the rest of us don't have to. So the tipping point is going to come when restaurants find that charging tips on top of their menu prices is turning off their guests, hmm. and they're already paying their team yeah. more than enough money. Interesting. That'll so, be a while, though. Yeah. What, what's your take today? Um, just this, we had a uh, debate on uh, Instagram about tipping housekeeping, t- tipping doormen, and everything. What, what is your take on that? Are you a? Do you tip? And you know, who do you tip when you travel, and where do you draw the line? I guess. Well, I see. I think your question itself yeah. is part of the reason I just want to eliminate yeah. it because, you know, people feel so confused. They confuse. They feel confused in their own country. Never mind when they travel yeah. somewhere else. Let's let's take a real easy example. You're going to a um, a local coffee shop, and there's a tip jar on the counter, mm-hmm. and you just paid what felt like a lot of money for a cup of coffee, and now you have a choice of feeling guilty that you didn't leave enough or feeling bad that mm-hmm. you didn't really feel like that person gave you $2 worth yeah. of service. Yeah. And I just, you know, I, I think I'm really, really comfortable going to someone's restaurant that accepts tips and I'm going to always be a generous tipper because mm-hmm. I understand that's yeah. how that wow. team is being compensated. But I don't necessarily feel great when I'm buying a cup of coffee, yeah. putting an extra buck or two I in know, there. And on a $2 or $3. <laughs> yeah. I feel bad either way. I, Uber was so interesting when they first started tipping it wasn't even like $1. Uber was like 15, 25 or 35%. I remember being like, what? Like, especially on like a ride to the airport. I'm like, that's a huge, I mean, I'm all for people, uh, you know, making a good living, but yeah, it is kind of, it's just, it's everywhere now. And yeah, it would be nice to live in a, a non-tipping world. And, and what tipping, and what tipping has always been, has yeah. been an attempt for the business owner to, to push costs. off on the customer a yeah. cost that is in fact a cost, right, but we don't business. want to bear it. We right. want... We want you to feel like, well, since I only paid for the ride out of my left pocket, the tip's coming out of my right pocket. I guess that's okay. One of the most ludicrous ways we're seeing that in hotels is resort fees and, uh, you know, hotels charging for, you know, attendance and like all these things, you know, like at a resort, you know, some resorts turn up to $95 a night and this extra fee to pay for the things that should be a part of running a resort and included in a... And I think people don't really enjoy being nickel and dime. Yeah. Okay, let's take a quick pause right now and hear from our sponsors. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Getting back to Union Square Tokyo, like, what did you learn? So that was your first expansion, and and that's a pretty tough market to enter. What did you learn there? Well, the good news is we have a partner, yeah. fantastic partner. In fact, with even with Shake Shack, which is now in 14 different countries, mm. we always have a local partner because we know what we don't know. We don't know nearly as much about real estate yeah. or sourcing and distributing product. And I think what we learned in Tokyo is fascinating. The group that we work with, which is a company called Wonder Table, already has a great reputation in the restaurant industry, the real estate industry. What they really wanted more than anything was not just Union Square Cafe. What they wanted was to learn more about hospitality. Because even though the Japanese have the expression we mentioned, omotenashi, 
as, as he told me when we first got together, our partner, he said, in general, I think we in our culture are much better at regimentation and following directions and order than you guys are. Hmm. If you give us a recipe, we can cook it perfectly. Yeah. Give us a sheet of music, we can play it perfectly. He said, but if you've ever wondered why the Japanese are so fascinated by American jazz, it's the jazz is improvisation. And that's what hospitality is. Hmm. Hospitality is the opposite of regimentation. If you, and he took me through one of these eight story malls that you see a lot of, and he said, I want you to look at that person. So I looked at the person, the person bowed. Hmm. And he said, that person doesn't know whether or not you wanted to be bowed to. They just do it because that's their job. But he said, I want you to teach us how to treat each person as an individual. Because I read your book, Setting the Table, where you used to talk about hospitality is a dialogue, hmm. service is a monologue. Hospitality is where one size fits one, service is where one size fits all. Hmm. And so we have learned a lot from each other uh, from doing Was that. Was it hard training those employees in, in Japan to get that? Because like, you're kind of trying to not unhardwire them, unwire them to think differently. Yeah, well, it was it was one of the most gratifying experiences ever. The only hard thing, and I'm sure you've had this experience, is every time you say something, you have to wait another minute till it gets translated. And then you say, <laughs> you have to remember where you were. But on more than one occasion, and I've also seen this in the Middle East with um, employees at Shake Shack. I've seen this in Dubai and Kuwait. Um, I've seen this in Turkey and Russia with Shake Shack employees. Many of the hourly employees are either from Poland or the Philippines in those mm-hmm. countries. And same thing I saw in Japan. People cry because for their entire lives, they've been told not to be themselves in a mm. service interaction, a transaction. So and crying what, from like a liberation yes, standpoint? Yes, yes. And what the hospitality transaction is, it's giving you permission. In fact, it's a mandate to try to... In addition to the Mm. technical thing you're doing, I have technically trained to put this food down or pour that bottle of wine or clear that plate in a specific way. But with hospitality, which is very different from service Mm. because it's an emotional transaction, you are asking people to try to understand who is this person, what does this person need, and then call on yourself to ask yourself, if I were that person, what would I want? Mm. And the, the cool thing that we would teach um, interestingly, the Japanese team that we first trained in Tokyo had never heard of the golden rule, do unto others as you would have others do unto you. So this was a little tough to teach because that is the golden rule, but that's not the golden rule of hospitality. The golden rule of hospitality right. is do unto others as you believe they want done unto them. Right. Because we're all different. Right. And that's where the crying starts because there was this liberation from being told, don't be yourself. Do the thing you're supposed to do. Yeah, that's fast. And and they could still make people even. I think it took some trust to realize that they can make people even happier yeah. when they customized the delivery of the service. So much of your business models on the human element and hospitality, as more and more now, whether it's mobile ordering, you know, you go into a McDonald's and it's all touch screens, and it's you know, I get my Shake Shack most of the time through Postmates. Especially when I have a little bit of a hangover, there's just nothing like it. <laughs> what, what's your go-to order? Just so um, I know. I well, lately I've I do the Shack Stack, the burger and the. That's pretty impressive. Yeah, I and then cheese fries. <laughs> okay, but what what is your take on mobile ordering and taking that human element out of it? Obviously, it's better. I hate waiting in lines. I do yeah. like. 
being with people, but do you see that as a risk to your business that you built this brand so much on that human interaction? You know, it reminds me of back in 1998. We were starting to play around with online reservation systems, and we finally picked one called Open Table, which I initially was against because I said, but that means that all these incredibly nice people who answer our phones, we're going to give up that that amazing hospitality moment. Yeah. And one of my business partners, who's still with me, said, oh, Mr. Hospitality, last time I checked, you said hospitality is being on the other person's side. And someone who's making their reservation online is probably doing it because that's how they want to make their reservation. Yeah. They don't really want to have to worry about your business hours in yeah. whichever time zone you're in. And I would say the same thing is absolutely true of how people want their food today, which mm-hmm. is if you don't want to wait in line and, and there is technology to allow you not to have to wait in line, yeah. who the heck am I to right. stop yeah, that? And what, what is our responsibility yeah. is to find a way to make that experience feel even more like we're on your side than not. And we're just scratching the surface. I mean, I really want to be at the point where, you know, the person – who would have hopefully recognized you and said, welcome back, would you like the usual order? Mm-hmm. I would like to be at the point where the machine can do that knows more that consistently. Knows that I'm hungover and my phone can sense my blood alcohol levels. Brian, you're going to need your, no. Well, the first time uh, my son Peyton came to um, the Astor Place Shake Shack, which is where we first tested uh, kiosks, and Peyton said, well, the cool thing is the machine's not going to probably ever wake up on the wrong side of the bed. <laughs> We'll probably Barring always software get software update. Yeah, <laughs> probably always get your order right. Yeah, and then to the degree that you have human beings in the place, they don't have to multitask. They can do a hundred percent of the hospitality, yeah. and they won't have to worry, worry about, about hospitality the while they're yeah. also trying to do right. a transaction that can be a hard thing. So when we can get the machines to virtually smile at you by remembering you, mm-hmm. and you know we know what your last yeah. order was, and we know. We know how to say welcome back. We know how to say, hey, Brian, uh, was it a hangover last time or, <laughs> or are, you, are you just or on just a diet today? Lagged, yeah. <laughs> Food on planes is a touchy subject with frequent travelers. I remember being on a Dash 8 regional jet from LaGuardia to Ithaca. It was a 90-degree day. We're sitting on the tarmac. There's no air. And someone next to me opens up a tuna wrap. And mm. I... Uh. The, the the gag that the, I was just like, are you kidding me? I mean, Do you have it, a thing it, for tuna in general. I actually like tuna, but because for, it it it's, it's for me, it's for me, it's it was you, like Parmesan was on it, and I was like, this yeah. is not for me. When someone on an airplane unwraps something with yeah. garlic, and, yeah, and whatever it smelled like on the ground, it smells fifty times 50 that times. much, right? So that's why I'm like, I'm very careful. I'll bring a bagel, but not an everything bagel. So what what will you bring on the plane, and what will you not? Bring on an airplane. I'd say the only thing I ever bring on a plane is Shake Shack mm. because I want people to see it because I'm shameless. I'm <laughs> You're shameless. Shameless promoter. promoter. That makes two of us. I think the breakfast sandwiches at Shake Shack are a fine way to start the day. Yeah. But outside of that, I'm not a big bringer food. Back in the old days when you could bring wine on the plane, I would often bring a half bottle of wine with me um, and open it very carefully. Yeah. But so someone told me recently that a lot of restaurants have created breakfast menus because airports, in order to be in an airport, you have to serve breakfast or something like that. Is that, was that the uh, genesis behind Shake Shack's breakfast? Like were you Yeah, kind of, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. We otherwise never would have served breakfast. Just like when we opened Mialino, 
in the Gramercy Park Hotel, the, the, the deal was you guys have to serve breakfast. We had never served breakfast in a restaurant. And the funny thing is that if you go to breakfast at Mayalino, you'll notice that there's not more than 5% of the guests who are travelers staying in the hotel. It's, all, it's almost all New Yorkers yeah. who have made this their, their downtown club. How do you envision growth um, for the brand? So that, that's, a, that's another great question. I want to share that in my industry, historically, the food business would not grow internationally until it had first oversaturated in the United States. That was, that mm-hmm. was just the recipe for how this all worked. We did a deal with a company, a uh, fantastic company based in Kuwait called Al Shaya for 20 Middle Eastern restaurants when we only had three and a half Shake Shacks. That's crazy. And I thought it was crazy, too. I mean, I had never been there before, and mm-hmm. I sent a couple of my business partners. They flew Emirates over. They had a great time. They came back, and they said, Danny, this, this company is the Starbucks licensee in the Middle East. Every Starbucks we went to in the Middle ah. East is packed and cleaner and hmm. better run than any of the three that you can walk to from your office on Union Square. Hmm. And, and I said, if we, could, if we could learn how to grow from an expert yeah. copy machine right. <laughs> far away from New York, far away from our regular guests, learn about distribution, learn about training, learn about design, because we wanted to keep Shake Shack as small as we could for as long as yeah. we could, this gave us a way to to grow without anyone knowing that we were growing and learn from and it. We yeah, learned, with trusted partners, we learned yeah. so much from it. And so that particular company did such a great job with us in the first four Middle East countries that we worked in. And the other countries that we're now in all have different international partners. How do they do you change the menu and all these like will they say you gotta do this in Russia or that, you know, add an item or something, or do you keep it? We actually try to do that. Yeah. In fact, if you go to any Shake Shack in the United States, we call it the eighty twenty rule. Eighty percent of the menu is something you would see everywhere, but twenty percent should be somewhat localized. What's your favorite random thing from a from a Shake Shack menu somewhere? Is it probably Austin, Texas, where we do the Lockhart Link burger? So we get a wonderful smoked sausage from Yum. Kreitz Market in Lockhart, Texas. And I've never been hungrier in a podcast We slice right it now. and put it right on top of the Shack <laughs> Burger, and it is good. That sounds amazing. So your company's expanding like crazy. Where do you love to travel? Like, what, What's your destination that you take your family when it's like, this is time to get away? Uh, the truth of the matter is I'm always torn between a place I've never been and, and a place I love. So if it's a place I've been, the, the ones that we probably return to most frequently would be Rome, London and Paris. Domestically, I'm always happy in California. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy traveling anywhere because for me, it's it's truly the only time I'm ever by myself. Mm-hmm. Um, as a matter of fact, I wrote my book in secret, traveling uh, from New York to San Francisco and back back when I was on the board of Open Table, and there was no. There was no Wi-Fi on planes back then. So do you, did you like it better in the days where we didn't have Wi-Fi on planes? I go both ways with that. I liked it better now because I would hate to be without it now that I've had it. Yeah. But I do miss the time when it was you and your book and your magazines yeah. or whatever it was you were writing. I've never been a big movie guy on planes. I never I'd, watch movies on planes. I'll, either, I'll read. I'll put Bose headphones on with the sound noise canceling on and I'll like sit there and read or... 
like do research or something. Yeah. I like uh, you know, you haven't asked me this question, but I just have to share because how do you talk to the points guy and not at least talk about points for yeah, a second? Well, gonna, are you a points guy? So I am a points guy and I'm a points guy from way back. I have my my frequent flyer number memorized it's from like TWA. <laughs> no, many digits from many years ago. I think that it's a brilliant concept and when done well, mm. it is it is golden handcuffs unlike anything else. Yeah. And I, I call it I, the, like the elite status hamster wheel. Like once you're on it, it's like you can't get off. Right. Like gotta, so I've been diamond on Delta now because yeah. why wouldn't you fly Delta when you're serving food and yeah. in first class? And also we've got some some food in, in their terminals as well. But it got to the point where I would be at a board meeting in Texas or on the West Coast, and one of the other board members would have a private jet and say, yeah, I'm going to give you a lift home. And I'd say to myself, you got to find a reason to say no thank you because you can't give up the miles. And I'm going, now, wait a second. This is a little insane because I'm earning the miles so I can have a first-class yeah. upgrade. I'm yeah. getting a guy who's going to yeah. save me going through security at the airport, saving me an hour and a half of my life. Yeah. But it's all about the miles. Oh, help me understand me. It's, it's a drug, man. But how is it? So designing food for airplanes, I mean, and putting your name on something that's going to be cooked by someone else in a tiny, you know, heated up in a galley. Like, what has that experience been like, you know, yeah, working it, with Delta on those Delta Well, ones? working with Delta has been great because they care about it. And they understand mm -hmm. that, that, you know, once you get someone to their destination on time, the real differentiator are two things. What was the in-flight experience like in terms of what you consumed, whether it was entertainment or food, and were the people nice to you? Delta, amongst others, I think um, I think the industry is getting the message finally. Delta really gets the message. I think the experience of doing it is way harder than we ever imagined. Yeah. We knew that the bar was very low. <laughs> People kind of put airline food a half a click behind hospital food yeah. in general. <laughs> so and, you know, there's reasons for that. Yeah. The, the galleys used to have a yeah. lot more space. And they've gotten really and smaller. It, it One of the things that blows my mind is why in a, a day and age when every really, really nice hotel room has its own little coffee machine, mm -hmm. that you can't get a good cappuccino or espresso yeah. on an airplane. That's so true. And I think it's, that's changing, but it's yeah. all about inches in the yeah. galley. And what we've learned is that the less hands on our food, the better. So we're trying to produce mm -hmm. more and more of the food at, at Union Square Events, which is our big... Yeah catering kitchen here in new york city which is why the only food you'll ever see our name on is food that emanated from new oh, really york from that you would okay. never get it you, on from, a transcon flight yeah. from la here and i think what we're learning is that simpler is better people are not going on but yet no airplane. one does a good burger in the sky really have you why or do you guys you you haven't done we've done a couple specials yeah. with yeah. with delta but you're right about that and it all has to do with how the food is reheated yeah Think about pasta. Think about how much we all love pasta. Yeah. But the only pasta you ever really, really liked on an airplane was probably lasagna. Mm. Something that you could put yeah. in an oven and not worry that it was going to dry out. Yeah, You'll never see spaghetti on an airplane because yeah. it's going to either Crisp get crispy yeah. or it's going to be not. you know, complete mush. Yeah. And it's a hard thing. I think soups can do really, really well. I, th I think so much. I, Delta does really good soups, I have to say. And who doesn't love a good soup? Yeah. And the other thing with soup is that it can convey a lot of flavor. Your taste buds 
um, are actually muted when you're when yeah. you're in the sky. And, and is that why everything's? That's why everything's so salty, right? That's why a lot of things are salty. You'd be surprised at the things that that the airlines think about, though, with respect to food. For example, for some obvious reasons, bean soup is out. Um, they don't want people having any. <laughs> Wait, why is that? Yeah, they don't beans, want people beans. having stomach issues while they're <laughs> on the airplane. Um, no cabbage. I'm, I'm Yet they you, always serve asparagus too on planes, which that doesn't <laughs> tend to interfere with your seatmate. That's true. That's true. <laughs> so if you're going to fly on a, on a Delta flight out of JFK and you you can be served your food, do you get do you bring your shake? Well, obviously you said you already bring the Shake Shack on, but will you also eat? Yes. Yeah, fly I, as well? I do that, and I walk. I'm the weirdo walking up and down the aisle to see if other people are enjoying what they're eating as well. I've even. I almost always introduce myself to the purser or the flight attendant. I've actually once had three different meals on a, on a flight that had three dinner choices. I got all three of them because I really want to road yeah. test these things. Now, the first first time we ever served food uh, on Delta, it was strictly the JFK Heathrow flight. This was several years ago. Someone on our team came up with the really fun idea of having your cocktail made seatside. And I was one of the first flights. Delta sent me over there to experience mm-hmm. the whole thing. I had, I had three different entrees. Had to do the cocktail. The entire shaker oh, no. burst open all over <laughs> my lap. And I said, "You actually could not have picked a better person to do this to." Aisle or window seat? What's your preference? Aisle. Why is that? Just don't you like looking out? Everyone's aisle seats these days. I'm like yeah. totally team. I, window. I don't like to I'm be. Sure you're, I'm sure your son Peyton likes the window seat, right? Either way, okay. He just likes being on a plane. Yeah, no, I don't like to be landlocked. I've got long legs, and I like to get up when I want to get up, and I don't want to have to ask somebody else to please move. Yeah. I don't like that. Good point. All right, Danny Meyer, it's been fascinating talking about your business, travel. It's at the core of who you are as a person. I think I need to fly to Delta and get me some Shake Shack, like, right now. Christy, when's my next flight? Thank you so much for joining us and safe travels. And thanks for what you do to help the world travel better. I think everyone just needs to travel a little bit more and this world would be a better place. That's it for this episode of Talking Points. Huge thanks to our fascinating guest, Danny Meyer, and a big thank you to the best podcast team in the biz, Caroline Shagrin, Margaret Kelly, and my amazing assistant, Christy Matsui. And also a huge welcome to TPG offices, Peyton Meyer, who is a points nut, and it was good to meet you. That's it for this episode. Safe travels, everyone. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.